All right, we're going to turn our attention to the message for today. And here is what we are discovering in this season and these series of messages that when the first Christmas took place, we often turn it into quaint images and the awesome environments that we create in our homes and around churches, and that is great. But what we may miss in that is the reality of how when God showed up into this world, it interrupted real lives. There were people whose lives were headed in a particular direction, and then when God showed up, that went away. Or they had an opportunity to make a choice about whether to continue the route that they had chosen already, or maybe to join God in what he was doing. And here's what we said last week, and we're going to say it again this week, that interruptions are often God's invitations to something bigger than myself. And the first Christmas was a giant interruption for a lot of the people that are part of the story And we've turned them into nice, beautiful images. You know, here's one of those. And these, you know, images on cards are so great. And, you know, here's this young couple, right? But picture this, nine months pregnant, making a 90-mile journey on the back of a donkey. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that what we all aspire for to say, now that's how I want to spend Christmas, is traveling 90 miles by donkey, and yet we turn it into something so beautiful and so quaint. But we're going to discover that this couple right there in that image, there was an interruption that showed up at that first Christmas. And especially that dude walking in the front of that donkey, he had a decision to make his plans get interrupted. So let me ask you this question before we jump into that story. Did you ever have your plans interrupted? I think in this world, that's just a given. The only question is exactly how. As I think, you know, a couple stops along my life's journey, you know, my goal in life early on was to become a professional baseball player. And that plan got interrupted, mostly by a general lack of baseball talent uh, was working against me. Um, So God had this other thing in mind for me, and that's awesome. I can remember uh, when my wife and I, I was finishing up um, seminary back in the day, like, you know, a long time ago, like the earth was still fresh and new back then. It's a long time ago. And one of the things that we talked about was maybe serving, you know, internationally um, as missionaries. The organization said, no, you guys have school debt. That's not going to happen. And so God added this other thing in store, and that was awesome. And then we were serving for a number of years, you know, just content on the East Coast. And then we got contacted by some people in this place we'd never heard of. It's called Utah. Have you ever heard of it? And they said, hey, you know, there's a need out here. And we said, nope. And a year and a half later, here we were. And so sometimes God interrupts things and has something on the other side of that that you never anticipated, but there is a choice that comes along with that. Have you ever had your plans interrupted? If you have, look for the invitation there. The invitation to join God in something bigger than yourself. So now let's jump into that story. And here's my fear as we go through some of the Christmas stories. If you've been around church for any length of time, you know these stories, right? It's one of the challenges for pastors. It's not like they're new stories every year. It's the same stories that have been there for so long. And many of us can jump to the end of the story. So when we begin the story, we already know what the outcome is. But I want to slow us down a little bit in this account that may be so familiar so that we 
understand not only the interruption, but the choice that was presented for somebody to either join God in what he was doing or continue the road that he was already walking. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ, and sometimes along the way, people ask me the question, is Christ Jesus' last name? The answer is no. That's not his last name. Christ is a Greek word. The Hebrew equivalent of it is Messiah. And so it is a title. It is not a name per se. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, let me hit the pause button there. In the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, there were three steps toward marriage. The first step was called engagement. And sometimes in that culture, because marriages were arranged, parents would arrange the kids' marriage in the future. And that is something when I was first exposed to that and I was young, I'm thinking that sounds like the most horrific thing in the world that my parents would decide who I was going to wind up marrying when I had teenagers. I was pretty much for it um, at that point <laughs> and thinking that's not a bad idea um, at all. So there was this engagement and that could become really early. Then there was betrothal and that's the second step. That generally happened one year before a wedding ceremony and unlike our engagement, right? Somebody gives you a ring and something happens and you give that ring back and it's all off and that's just the way it is. Betrothal required a legal step to end it. It was like getting divorced in our context. And so betrothal is a real serious level of commitment there and in every way legally they're already viewed as being married even though they're not cohabitating, they're not living together, but that is coming but it's still a matter of time. And then, of course, the third step is to actually have a wedding ceremony and live together as husband and wife. But right now, they're in step two, but in our context, it's more serious than what we often think of as engagement. So when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's talk about that word just for a minute. You might have a translation that says that he was a righteous man, being a righteous man. And there's a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight who's done a lot of work around this, and what I'm about to share comes from him. But he says that there is actually a category in which people would bear that title. They were just, they were righteous. The Hebrew word for that is tzaddik. And it has the idea, righteous and just. And to be in that group was to be considered a tzaddikim, a member of the just group. What did that mean? What did it require? It meant an absolute commitment to obedience to the Old Testament law. And maybe you know in the Old Testament, there's several hundred commands, a whole bunch of things to do, a whole bunch of things not to do, and the people in that group committed themselves to absolute obedience to every single one of those commands. And culture looked at them and they said, you know what, there is a just man. There's a righteous person. Because they are absolutely, completely committed to the things of God as he has revealed them to us. 
And so Joseph is one of those people who is committed to all of that. And there's a little detail even in the word being there, which is a participle, going to get way down in the weeds of some language here, that can be translated a number of ways. And so somebody in that category who now has a betrothed spouse who shows up pregnant, what is he supposed to do? And typically, what a just person, a righteous person would do in that situation when their future spouse, but now we are already legally married, when they show up pregnant and you are not the father, the typical response is you go public with that and make sure that your entire community, they live in this little town called Nazareth, it's kind of like Ogden, only even less degrees of separation there. Everybody knows everybody else's business and kind of knows everybody else. Word is going to get around. And so you go in front of your community and you make it clear, she has been unfaithful. I am not the father of this child and this thing is going to be separated because you wanted to maintain your status as a just person, a righteous person, a tzaddikim. But being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. In the Old Testament, the most extreme way to respond to your betrothed spouse showing up pregnant was that she could be stoned to death in public. The lesser way is this one, and we think, well, Joseph's a good guy who decides to take the lesser road. But there's actually something in the detail of this language that would tell us that even though he was in that category of a just man, he decided that he was going to not expose her publicly. This is somebody committed to absolute obedience. And what he's doing in this step, and again, it's a real temptation for us to run to the end of the story, but what he's doing in this step is he's putting his entire reputation on the line. Because if he does not go public and he does not let everybody know, hey, I'm not the father of this child, it's going to be viewed that there has been something that in that culture was virtually unheard of. And that was people cohabitating before the final step of marriage. So a just man is putting his entire reputation and all the commitment that he has made to that direction in his life up for grabs in this moment. And what he discovers along the way is that maybe even God is up to something new in terms of what it means to be a just person, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be somebody who's following hard after God. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, why would that detail of son of David be in there? Hundreds of years earlier, the predictions of the coming Messiah included the prediction that he would be in the line of David. And Joseph, that's where you are. So Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why would he be afraid? Because if he takes her as his wife, his standing in that community as a part of that group is over. They're going to assume what we would naturally assume, that if she shows up pregnant and they're betrothed, well, it's his child. And so there is fear that comes along with that. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but my guess is Joseph would have wanted what we would have wanted in that moment. God, thank you for that insight. 
Now, could you tell the whole town that too? <laughs> because they're, you know, not exactly on the same page and they would probably be on the same page that I was before you just showed up and gave me that information. So thank you. Could you let all of Nazareth now know? But of course, God does not. And for Joseph, that presents a choice. He has a choice to make. Will I join God in what he has just revealed that he is doing? Or am I going to continue to pursue the direction that I have been working really hard for a long time to be a just man, to be a righteous man? But he can't have both. If he pursues God's way, it'll cost him the other. If he continues to pursue the just route, he's going to miss out on what God is doing because he can't go in that direction. And I think there's a principle that springs from that, that pleasing God sometimes means disappointing people. And sometimes we can't have both. And we need to make a choice. And I think it would be really easy for us to take that principle and to say, yep, and there's a dividing line, and you know what, we're in church, and we all know what the right answer to that is. Follow God, and don't worry about disappointing people, but I want to focus on something a little bit different. Notice the first two words, pleasing God means something. But it is possible for real people in this world to please God. The transcendent holy God who spoke a universe into existence with just a word, who is completely righteous and holy in every aspect of who he is. The infinite eternal God without boundary or limitations possessing an intellect, emotions, and will. And to think, wow, can people do that? And we might ask the question, you know, as we entertain that idea that it is possible for us to please God. And we wonder, how does that happen? And I think what Joseph is going to teach us is that it happens in simple acts of obedience. It's not about ending wars between countries on our own. It's not about bringing peace on earth by our own two hands. That'd be great. All of that would be great. But it is possible to please the holy God by simple acts of obedience. The angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah about 700 years before this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this child that's coming, Joseph, is going to be special. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, but also coming as a baby. Fully God, fully man. Joseph, what are you going to do? And before we want to jump ahead to all the Christmas cards and the images that we have, that choice was really a difficult choice. And we might be also tempted to believe that when people side with God, everything works out well and everybody eventually understands. And can I just challenge that line of thinking with this specific part of the story? Let me jump ahead. Jesus is now an adult. He's gone public with his ministry. 
He's teaching things that people had never taught before. He's teaching with authority that none of the teachers of the law had. He's doing things that only God can do. He's healing the sick and he's curing the lame. And then one day, some religious leaders push back on him. And when he makes a pretty outrageous claim, really one of his many claims of being God in the flesh, they say, isn't this Jesus, the son of Mary? And to us, that doesn't bring a whole lot of meaning, but I got to tell you, in that culture, all those years ago, that meant something and it wasn't good. Joseph never appears after the early part of the Christmas story. And most commentators believe somewhere between Jesus' birth and the first couple years, and when Jesus went public with his ministry at about age 30, Joseph dies in there somewhere because he doesn't show up at all. But even though a father has died, when you were referring to a child in that culture at that time, you would reference them in connection to their father. And so it would have been very normal for them to say, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? Because remember, they never had the angel show up and say, no, this is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And to say, isn't this Jesus the son of Mary? Was incredibly disrespectful. It was a way of saying that there has been behavior so unethical and so offensive. And isn't this Jesus the son of a, and we would use a very rude word in our day to fill in that blank. And so this decision about putting his reputation up for grabs was a real decision. And it was something that even decades later proved to be true. You have a choice. You're going to follow God or you're going to continue to pursue your way. People never understood what it was all about in the same way that he did. So let me make this a little bit more personal for us. Let me ask you this question. Do you care about what others think about you? Let's take a little bit of a quiz here this morning. How many people would be you know, willing to say, I care what other people think about me to some degree? Can I see your hands? And those of you that didn't raise your hand, I think you care the most. <laughs> Let's take a little bit of a quiz here this morning to see if we care about what other people think. How many people, when you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror, you did something about what you saw? How many people did that? <laughs> Why did you do that? Did you put some stuff in your hair too to get the cowlicks under control? Because you care about what other people think. How many people picked out clothes that sort of kind of match each other rather than I'll just grab anything and wear that? Why did you do that? Let me ask you this question. Somebody shows you a picture and says, man, it's a great group shot. And you look at that group picture. How many of you look at everybody else and how they look in that picture before they get to you? Or do you go right to you and see if your eyes are open and you look really good in that picture? I think we care a little bit more about what people think than we are often willing to admit. So, let me posit this to you here. Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget about what God thinks about you. And I think we live at a time where it is so much easier than it's ever been to really care about what people think. I mean, how many of us can have hundreds of friends we've never met, 
but social media connects us in ways and we care about who liked our post and who didn't like our post and who didn't comment on all of that. And it's really easy to lean in that direction. So let me change a couple words on this. Become obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget about what people think about you. And did you know that God has revealed his thoughts about you? and what it means to be in a relationship with him? Did you know that God loves you? And again, if you say, well, I haven't really given God a second thought, it's okay, he loves you anyway. And he knows your name, and he cares about you. And what it says in the book of Ephesians, inside of that relationship with God, you know what he calls somebody? He calls them a masterpiece created for good things, good works, for things that honor God, respond to God, reflect God in so many ways. And there's a whole lot more. And there's an opportunity for us to lean in God's direction, get our sense of identity of what does God think about somebody like me? Now, let's not get under any illusions, you know, that God is not aware of the reality about us either. Because this side of heaven, every single one of us is a work under construction. But you know what else he said? One day, he's going to complete the work that he started. And someday, it's not going to be the way that it is here. And someday, we're not just going to be a bigger, better version of who we are now. It is so much better than that. God will complete the work that he began in all those who put their hope and their trust in him. So what does God think of you? And do we draw our sense of identity from him. Which direction do we lean? So Joseph, what are you going to do? When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. A simple act of obedience. He took his wife, that's a legal statement there, he says, you know, we're betrothed, we still got a ways to go before the wedding ceremony, but he went public and said, Mary is going to be my wife. I stand with her, and I stand with this child. He chose Jesus long before he ever chose to put his hope and trust in Jesus. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And before the angel said, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And the name is really important, and I think it tells us something that we need to know. Jesus is a Greek version. The Hebrew name is Yeshua. And what does it mean? Both of those mean the same thing. The Lord is salvation. Even in Jesus' name, we get an indication. How are people made right with God? Who does that? God does. And maybe somebody who had committed himself so entirely to keeping all the commands of God came to realize, you know what? I can't earn anything with God. I can simply respond to his invitation. I can join him. Coming up here in the season ahead, in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be this great tradition we have of exchanging gifts. 
Here's what is not going to happen on Christmas morning, and I don't know about you, I actually came from the tradition where we exchange gifts on Christmas Eve, which I think is way better because one, you get your stuff sooner, and you can sleep in on Christmas and you don't have to worry about, you know, what's under there. But anyway, it's free country. You do whatever you want to do. And here's what's not going to happen, though. If you take a gift and you, and you give it to somebody, imagine somebody responding by, wow, thanks. Hey, let me give you a 20 for that. Uh, no, I don't want to get a 20 from you. It's, it's a gift. It's for you. All right, well, let me give you a 10. No, I don't want 10 either. All right, how about five? I'll give you five. No, it's a, it's a gift. How about I'll show up at your house and I'll do some chores for you? I'll clean up a little bit in the summer. I'll mow the grass. No, it's a, it's a gift. And I think at Christmas, we have this incredible experience of exchanging gifts and we think well is that because the wise men showed up and had gifts that's part of it but part of it is the gift that God came to give us a relationship with him and just like a gift that we're going to receive at Christmas time the gift of God is something that we cannot earn in any respect it's something we don't work for by doing some chores for God so to speak it's simply his gift now, does what we do matter? I think Joseph says, yeah. You know, obedience is a real thing, but it is a response to the invitation of God. And it is something that reflects a commitment to God. But it doesn't get us into the good graces of God. That's his grace alone. And that's the Bible word, grace. And you know what it literally can be translated as? Gift. It's a gift. And so what does that mean? A relationship with God is a gift of God. And I don't want to make it sound like it's never going to cause any interruptions because you know what? It can, and sometimes it does. But those interruptions, even that one, and maybe especially that one, is an invitation to something bigger, bigger than myself, and an opportunity for us to join God in what he's doing. And that includes you. Would you bow your heads together with me as I pray? God, thank you for this incredible season. And in the middle of all of that is the great love of God that has reached down to ordinary people like us. And God, thank you for coming to our rescue. The Lord is salvation. That's how we belong to you. That's what threw the doors open to a relationship. It's your doing. And it was begun, it was completed, and it will be sustained by your power and by your love and by your grace to us. And God, inside of that journey, help us to walk in ways that respond to you, that carry out even simple acts of obedience, and in that, discovering so much more, more than ourselves, for sure. And so God, through this season, May we look for the invitations in the middle of the interruptions and discover that that is often a way to join you. And so God, be a part of um, what we do and what we say and even how we view this time at the center of it all. May we see your great love. And we pray that we would just have those moments that cause us to roll our eyes and wonder at the great love of God for each one of us. 
And we ask and we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.